0: Welcome to the Nobles U podcast. Thanks for listening and we're grateful you're with us after a few weeks off. My name is Mike Keelan, the director of teaching and learning at Nobles, and I'll be your host today. I uh, first as always want to explain the purpose of the podcast and what we're hoping to provide. So on the podcast, we speak with faculty and staff members all involved with our work related to teaching and learning, academic technology, DI culture and practices social emotional learning, and more. Our faculty and staff here have a great deal of expertise on a wide range of subjects. And through the podcast, we hope to learn from our guests who provide insight into the opportunities and challenges in the fascinating world of education. So today, we're excited to speak with David Roan, a member of our visual arts department, an artist himself who has also done meaningful work with our DEI team at Nobles.
1: David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate your inviting me. It's really an honor. I'm looking, I've am looking. been looking forward to this. Great. So before we talk Nobles,
0: I was just curious about life prior to Nobles. I know you've had an interesting trajectory
1: mm-hmm. to
0: Nobles. So just in terms of jobs and locations, could you give us a little bit of insight?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um, proud graduate of Whalen High School. I'm going to take it back there along uh, with, with my two brothers. But my twin brother and I graduated from Princeton. Uh, back in 1994, we played on the soccer team there. And then from there, I went. Uh, I majored in English when I was uh, an undergraduate and uh, took uh, art classes as electives. And I knew that I wanted to pursue art even further, uh, but I didn't have the credits uh, to uh, become be competitive for an MFA program. So I did a post back year at the Art Institute of Chicago. And then right after that, I started at Nobles back in 1995, stayed for about four, taught English as well as art, and stayed for about four years until 1999, and then left for about seven years to pursue my uh, Master's of Fine Arts at the University of Chicago. And then I came back to Nobles in 2006. While I was away, during those seven years, I was again pursuing an MFA, but I was also teaching at a public charter school in Washington D.C., where I happened to meet my uh, my lovely wife, and I was serving as a mayorally appointed city commissioner uh, through a three-year appointment as a city commissioner uh, overseeing grant distribution in the arts. I was also uh, as teaching, serving as an adjunct professor at the University of the District of Columbia uh, during those during those the seven years I was away. So in 2006 I came back to to Noble. So my affiliation with Noble spans now four decades, across four decades. And I guess my teaching experience spans a continuum between public and private education, uh, urban and urban and uh, suburban demographics and secondary and higher ed.
0: It's a pretty amazing trajectory with a lot of different experiences. Mm-hmm and really alluring opportunities. So what attracted you, you know, you left and came back. What was it about the Nobles community that attracted you to come back?
1: When I, I yeah, so I left, um, I came back, and I think by then, 2006, again, I had taught in a couple different, in different systems, public, private, suburban, uh, urban. And what I realized is that Nobles dignifies a profession uh, that are that are in ways that are very rare in secondary education and it's a, the it nobles epitomizes the world of human connections I know that sounds kind of cheesy but for me it's it has rung true and it's the quality of those relationships that serves the ultimate goal which is indexing high teacher uh, effectiveness and and deep learning among students so That's kind that's why I came back to nobles per se. My relationship to teaching has always, and the field has always been a little bit more complicated. Certainly as an arts educator who teaches because he loves to make art, there's always this tension that exists in the larger sense between art and commerce, but certainly when it comes to trying to earn a living as an artist, there's, there's always uh, a, a, difficult, a difficult journey. And that's a little bit more complicated. But my, um, but my reason for coming back to Nobles is because of how Nobles dignifies the profession. It's
0: well said, and I would absolutely agree. And, and I think the notion of human connections is something mm-hmm. that we've been talking a lot about as a Nobles faculty lately. So it's yeah. interesting to hear you talk about that in the context of art. And so, moving to art and the visual arts and teaching, for, this is a big question. But from what your what, from your perspective, you know, what, what's the value of the arts for students, and particularly visual arts, where you're located?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, there's there's power there's power in uh, in purpose, and when one when we create art, uh, we're actually creating meaning and meaning and therefore purpose and and ultimately well being. So I believe in Art as a self, in general, this is generally speaking, art as a self-empowering tool for the creation of meaning and then for the communication of meaning. So when we think about the power of purpose, you know, there's the, the standard, there's this idea that paradox associated with, with uh, Western progress, at least in the material realm, that we're liberated uh, we can gain liberation through abundance and prosperity, but it doesn't mean we're fulfilled by that abundance and prosperity. There's a book by Greg Easterbrook called "The pa- The Paradox of Progress." Yeah, so Victor Frankl's "Man's Search for Meaning" he talks about um, that uh, we might have means but no meaning, and um, and there's evidence to to, uh, to point to how um, the standard of living has increased over the decades, and yet uh, personal, familial, and life satisfaction levels have remained the same. And I think art can play a big role in creating a sense of purpose for people. I mean, that's kind of what I'm teaching, teaching my students. I just feel like art is just one form of practical application for the creative process at large. And so it's just um, one example of the human will at work and when it comes to creating and creating meaning we have the power to impose a reason for life on life itself i believe in these sort of grander ideals of the empowering aspect of art so that's why it's important on like a, a larger level i think on a on a personal level it's empowering because it gives you a way to, to create yourself on a certain level all art is autobiographical so when you're creating art, you're actually creating your own story. And then if you take a little time to meditate or contemplate what you created, you, it opens itself up like a text. And so you can read your story, i.e. look at your art, and have it um, and then divine meaning from it. And so I've, I've often found that the answers to questions that we search, um, that we look for, um, or that we ask for, and the advice of others actually exists within ourselves. We just have to give ourselves the means by which to, to see it and to interpret it. And that is also the power of art. Yeah, you know, I love
0: listening to these ideas. Yeah, and, and grand ideas, and I think inspiring and compelling ideas, mm-hmm. which I haven't come across. I feel like I'm listening to a phenomenal book about mm-hmm. the value of the arts. My next question would be about the skeptics, particularly student skeptics. So I'll speak for myself. I'm colorblind. Mm -hmm. And while I know I'm probably not supposed to speak in binary terms, I feel like I have no artistic capabilities whatsoever, especially when it comes to the visual arts. We play something like Pictionary, nobody can understand what I'm drawing. So my question is you know, when you have students in your classes who don't necessarily initially buy in, how do you encourage them? to experiment and engage in the ideals that you're alluding to.
1: Yeah. Well, I tell them art is just like anything else. Like if you invest 10,000 hours in anything, you can at least become proficient and set a pretty high floor for yourself. So I, I think that, um, that talent, sort talent and nature sets the floor for any sort of potential that we have, but hard work and nurture sets the ceiling. And I tell my students that I wouldn't be teaching art at all if I didn't think it could be learned. And so I think part of in the classroom, anyways, a big part of what we're trying to do is sort of demystify or deconstruct these fatalistic ideas students have about themselves and their art and, and as artists. And so we're trying to demystify or or debunk the myth of innate skill, that idea that um, you're that when it comes to making art and the, the skills to make art you're either born with the talent or not end of story and that is impervious to external nurturing and development i, I just do, i've never believed that and so again i if i am teaching art i think it can be learned i try to break it down as a language with its own grammar and syntax not unlike the uh, grammar and syntax that i'm using now to talk with you. It's a visual language as opposed to a verbal language. But with enough, with enough practice, one be, can become proficient in its use. And so if I can kind of start with that kind of frame that is just an applied and an acquired skill through hard work and practice, then it starts to make it more accessible for them. And that's kind of the hidden curriculum. I, I, I don't actually say these things necessarily explicitly to my students, but that certainly governs. My stance in, in in the classroom makes a lot
0: of sense, and I, I wish I would have had a teacher who maybe pushed me in that direction. Again, I think it's so easy to use word. I think you use that word fatalistic. Yeah. I think it's so easy in the arts to fall into that
1: fatalism. But you know, if you're human, that you are creative. It's funny because you say that you're colorblind, but um, and you're you're suggesting that you uh, you know have had some deficits I guess when it comes to visual art but we all instinctively when we come out of the womb almost uh, understand the power of pulling you know a pencil or a crayon across a surface and making a mark and you don't have to be colorblind to sort of to understand that instinctive uh, an instinctive act and so at some point we're just sort of counseled out or we're sort of you um, conditioned away from these impulses. And I think that's one thing, one great thing about nobles is that everyone has to take a visual art. I, I wish the requirement were, were greater than just one semester, but a lot mm-hmm. of students end up discovering this part of themselves and then proceed further within the sequence in the course sequence.
0: No, I... I... I think there is opportunity there. And I think the more exposure, it's just like any other discipline, I think the more yeah. exposure that our students receive, I think the more comfortable yeah. and confident they become yeah, in, in the respective discipline. Mm-hmm. So just on a personal level, like yeah. who are your favorite artists?
1: Yeah. I, you know, it's, a, it's always a, all these questions that end up being layered for me. But, uh, you know, I started as an English major. Uh, so literature governs a lot of, how I think about visual art, actually. And I've always thought of them as having a synergy. But so, um, and my mom was a, is a writer and so, and she really promoted the arts, the literary arts and also visual arts. So writing really, um, my favorite artists happen to be writers as well as painters. But I would say that in terms of um, writers would be um, anywhere from Shakespeare to Toni Morrison, but then, and then as painters, um, Caravaggio and Botticelli, all the way up to Kahinde Ke- Wiley and, and Charles White, whom people don't really know a whole lot about, but he was a giant in the middle of the previous century. Came up through the Works mm. Projects Association documenting the plight of working class and rural black Americans. And he always depicted his figures having these like uh, powerful hands and thick, robust kind of forearms, and reaching further than one might anticipate, which I always found incredibly powerful in in its statement. But those are the artists um, that that I've always sort of gravitated to for their ability to express the full range of emotions, the joy and pain of life, all the emotions, which I find to be incredibly, incredibly difficult to do. But they're able to articulate it through this, through the visual language that, that I mentioned earlier.
0: I find it really interesting. You, know, you mentioned you used to teach English, and mm-hmm. I was thinking you would immediately go to the visual arts, but the idea that there are literary artists
1: as well makes for an interesting combination and
0: yeah. interesting, interesting yeah, course. My own
1: art is, I think of it as uh, as heavy in content and in, in narrative content. I'm just simply trying to tell a story through a, a visual language as opposed to as opposed to a verbal language. But I guess my goal as an artist is to conflate, is to have the two fall into one another and and behave in the the same way. And I think that's actually been helpful in the classroom as well. If I can just break it down in terms of a grammar and a syntax that they can then practice. Um, And then there are some some rules that they can follow then, they can, then it's a chance for them to become proficient in it. And then, of course, from there, use a language to develop a voice. And that's also the power of the arts that I failed to mention earlier, and that is that it allows students to have a voice. And for a lot of students, it provides a voice for those who would otherwise remain silent. And that's another reason why it's, it's so empowering and also why it's so disheartening when you hear about art programs being students being squeezed out of their art of their art uh interest, but also art programs being squeezed out entirely from schools that are facing budget cuts and are and are underfunded yeah it's definitely been a
0: narrative over the last couple of years that has been really sad i think the humanities in general yeah. history english the arts it's pretty tragic and hopefully the will change again and, and things will shift back but yeah. yeah it's been really disturbing to read
1: about yeah 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 I mean the liberal arts are under attack arts are always and the visual arts applied arts as we might refer to them are uh, certainly are the first to go you know and, and that's has a lot to do with the nature of making art which positions us necessarily outside the mainstream potentially marginalizing us not just um, not just materially and financially, but also socially. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of a necessary sort of cross to bear in order to make art, that it, you have to remain objectively critical of the content. But to the extent that you need to do that in order to make the art positions you further and further off, uh, away from the center. And that's also yeah. that's the plight of the artist. I mean, this is a a
0: helpful transition, and you were referencing earlier that artists can sometimes help empower silent voices, and you've been a huge influence not only in your own department, but doing a lot of racial equity work here at Nobles. I was wondering if you could just speak about some of the aspects in which you've been involved.
1: Yeah, so I I just think about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, as sort of um, at least through the de- most of the years that I've worked with DEI, work uh, regarding the issues of DEI, it's really associated with what I refer to as sort of soft power roles. So I think about um, the sort of emotional, the emotional labor associated with leading affinity groups, human resource groups such as that, affinity spaces or being a sort of cultural evangelist or a cultural ambassador uh, regarding like the creation of ethnic celebrations or even um, leading sensitivity training workshops um, and inclusion workshops. So uh, my sort of history or career in DEI has sort of followed that sort of frame or has has followed that sort of line just regarding, Leading affinity groups and uh, and being involved with uh, inclusion training and so forth. Like right now, I am the leader for one of the uh, leaders for the seed for seed, which is um, which is an educational diversity workshop. Uh, And a lot of my work now happens involves mentoring uh, colleagues, mentoring other faculty, whether it's in my involvement with SEED, or my being the um, leader of the Employee of Color Affinity Group, Employees of Color Affinity Group, and even my work with the Faculty Advisory Committee. But DI has changed a lot and needs to change where our roles uh, sort of evolve from being what I refer to as soft power roles to ones of hard power. And that means having a seat at the table where, when, when it comes to operations and strategy and, the, uh, and policy, the creation and enforcement thereof. Mm-hmm. You know, one question circling
0: back to the beginning, yeah. you've had exposure to a lot of different sectors and a lot of different kind of educational experiences, including in charter schools. And I was just curious, as you look back, what are the unique challenges that independent schools specifically confront when engaging in racial equity work?
1: Yeah, the, the biggest challenge is it, its it, is its own history. You know, um, they were constructed as, they were created as theater schools for, and at least in this region, uh, Nobles was, Noble and Greenough School was, was created as a feeder school for Harvard. And um, so I felt that, you know, in a sense, it was ingrained in the DNA. And that history is really difficult to overcome because it influences culture. Like I don't think you need to be one needs to be white, male, able bodied, heterosexual, Protestant and wealthy to go to nobles. That's certainly not the case anymore. But the question remains to what extent does one need to act, whatever that whatever that word might mean to somebody, to what extent does one need to act, white, male, able bodied, heterosexual, Protestant and wealthy in order to feel like they belong? And that's still the operating question, you know? So yeah, so you don't need to necessarily be those things to be here but to what extent you need those to us to conform to those norms mm-hmm. in order to feel like feel like you belong that I, notion
0: of belonging is i think so crucial something that we're talking a lot about but i agree you know i think history of any institution but particularly the new england institutions and i would include our post secondary institutions our, our secondary institution and post-secondary institutions in the Boston area is ones that have these illustrious histories with a lot of successes, but a lot of paths in which inequities were baked into the DNA, as you described. Yeah. And yeah. it is difficult to overcome. Yeah. I did want to ask, you know, you have a really historical perspective, mm-hmm. having started in the early 90s. Where do you think Nobles has made the most progress in its efforts to become more <clears throat> equitable?
1: Yeah, I think, obviously, in the diversity piece, and when we think about the DEI formulation, that acronym, the the diversity piece regarding the demographic makeup of the school, that is where Nobles has really made a lot of strides. But it's not alone in that. I don't think any school worth its salt, at least in this region, would... Would have a divert, Would have a student of color. Excuse me. Any school worth, it, worth its salt would have anywhere upwards of 30 uh, percent students of color, and that's kind of like the norm now for for independent schools in this area. Re- it Represents a remarkable growth just from even 10 years ago, where the percentage was 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 lower. But that's kind of like the norm now, and in some sense, that's the easier work it's like the tangibility of that measurement of like how many students of color does, do, do you have in an institution is uh the tangibility of that measurement makes a positive bias towards it easier to confirm what's much more harder is moving what what's more difficult is moving from the d in the in in dei to the e and the i the equity and the inclusion. And that speaks to more of a cultural shift that needs to occur, but culture shifting culture is very difficult because it threatens to compromise the the brand niche of any institution and requires the sort of uh, an identity crisis and the growing pains associated with an identity crisis, in order to in order to in order to do that. And the question is, to what extent are schools really willing to, to go through that process, the growing pains associated with an identity crisis because that's really what it would take to shift culture. Earlier, um, I was the, the question has come up like, so we admit all these students of color, but how, how much does how more, what kind of effect do they have on the culture if all they're expected to do is assimilate or conform to those norms? that I mentioned earlier regarding being white, Protestant, able-bodied, male, heterosexual, wealthy? Yeah, no, it's a a
0: important, critical question. You know, I I think you're more looped into some of these conversations than I am, but my impression is that notion of belonging is right on the table. I think about our strategic plan and the notion of accessibility um, is definitely on the table. So, you know, I'd like to think, and, and I know that there are really smart people thinking about these questions and you've been a thought leader in pushing Mm -hmm. the questions and, and, you know, your point that even though the diversity numbers may be really impressive, it's only the beginning of what it takes to become an equitable and inclusive institution. Absolutely. I think that point is critical for sure.
1: Yeah. I think the DEI is, it's it's a mistake, I think, to, um, to see DEI as virtuous in itself. It's, it, it's, it's virtuous because um, it's a means towards justice It's the mm-hmm. justice that would make the DI virtuous in the first place. And so to the extent that that it's not viewed that way really sort of exposes the superficial a superficial engagement with justice And mm-hmm. so that's where we have to push. Uh, our, our schools, our institutions, and certainly nobles itself. So, you know, DI has been scaled up tremendously, certainly since the election, since uh, Donald Trump was elected back in 2000. Was that 2016? 2016, yep. and then the events around surrounding George, the death of George Floyd, um, and it's almost it's become kind of an industry uh, in, unto itself. But just because. Di has been industrialized. Doesn't mean that it's evolved. Um, and when I think about the next step for Nobles, I'm thinking about what is the next iterative stage in its big picture development. Like that's what we have to be thinking. It's no longer just about support groups, being and um, being a cultural ambassador or um, or sensitivity training. Those are all great, but that's again pat. That's like the norm. Like where does DI go in its big picture evolution? And I think part of it has to do with moving from the D to the E and the I. And also kind of recalibrating our efforts so that the burden falls of the, the DEI burden falls more upon, um, falls more where it should, which is upon white allies. And mm-hmm. I think that speaks mm-hmm. to a, Forward-looking sense of pluralism. Actually, it's not about blaming per se, not on the not on a, the immediate level, but um, it is about um, spreading the burden, um, yep. shifting responsibility where I think the more responsibility lies. I,
0: I think your voice is critical in these conversations. You've had influence. I think you're going to continue to have influence, and we're lucky that that is the case. We're almost out of time. Mm. Just curious if there's anything else in your mind as you look towards the future, You know anything that we've spoken about today?
1: No, I, I just really appreciate the opportunity, Mike. And I've always felt that there was a connection. I uh, love your prompts here and I love the work you're doing. And particularly with this interview, um, I, I think the connection between art and the DEI is really, really valid. Um, because when it comes to I always tell my students that we we paint where our courses are observational courses, and I always tell them that in order to make something look familiar on the page, you have to approach the subject as if it's unfamiliar to yourself, and that way you can bypass your preconceptions about what you think something should look like, and instead draw it and see it and draw it for what it really is in front of you in the present moment. So. Art becomes a great, uh, becomes an apt metaphor for um, for how DI should work and how actually we should be interacting with one another. That is, without any preconceptions and notions that distort, that could potentially distort how we see the world. Thank you so
0: much, David. I feel like I learned a ton today. You inspired my confidence in getting past the colorblindness. So I think with Come my 65 an year old, I'll, I'll try and out compete them. Audit. Maybe. Come and take an yeah, art class. I'll, I'll go stuff. after it. Yeah. Anytime um, like. j- just wanted to uh, throw out there. Hopefully you enjoyed the podcast today. Um, if you're listening, there are other podcasts available uh, through Apple and Spotify, the Nobles You podcast. Um, you got a sense of how thoughtful David was and we're lucky to have other faculty who have stepped up and had really great conversations. So encourage you to check those out. Um, if not, hopefully we'll see you
1: soon. And thanks again, David. Was My pleasure, Mike.